Civ Tech Talks. I'm a Jay Jane. And I'm Evan DeBrew. Evan, do you remember the first couple of weeks of the Civic Digital Fellowship? Yeah, it was quite a slow time. I spent most of my first few weeks just trying to complete security protocol trainings and endlessly annoying IT people to ask when Google Chrome was going to be installed on my computer. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like quite a fun time. I didn't have anything that bad, but I did have to get a new work laptop shipped to me because IT forgot to install something before I got my device. But more related to the podcast, this was also when we got our feet wet and got fully immersed in learning about the wonderful opportunities that exist in civic tech and in social tech. Yes, it was. We were paired with civic and social technology mentors who did a great job talking with us one-on-one -on -one about their own civic tech journeys and answering any questions we had about entering the space. Yeah, I completely agree. This is why I think it's truly awesome that my mentor during the Civic Digital Fellowship is coming on the podcast today. It's really a small world and it ties everything back to the start of your civic tech journey. Jay, who is our guest today and what's their background? So Evan, our guest today is the staff technologist at the ACLU of Massachusetts and my civic tech mentor from the Civic Digital Fellowship, Lauren Chambers. Lauren has an amazing background and journey to civic tech. She obtained her bachelor's degree in astrophysics and African-American studies at Yale before briefly working in astrophysics itself. And for reasons that she'll talk about in our episode, she ended up pivoting to social tech into the career that she has today. Lauren has also done some work in the past with Impactful, which is an excellent organization to join if you are looking for civic and social tech opportunities. Wink, wink. <laughs> she also has some amazing resources on her website for potential civic technologists. That is definitely true. I'm truly excited for y'all to hear about Lauren's journey, her projects, and the resources she suggests for civic technologists. Well, alrighty then, let's get this episode started. All right. Welcome to the podcast, Lauren. Thanks so much. Thanks for the invitation to join. Lauren, I wanted to start off talking a little bit about your undergraduate career. Your journey to the ACLU has always been intriguing to me, specifically because you double majored in a STEM field and a humanities field during your time at Yale, just like I did as an undergraduate at the University of Illinois. For me, I double majored in statistics and computer science and political science, while you double majored in astrophysics and African-American studies. Why did you decide to obtain your degree in two very different yet intriguing and important fields? And what sort of work did that lead to? So the joke that I always tell is that it's because I really liked the letter A and I didn't want to have to spend too much time scrolling through the drop-down <laughs> menus. <laughs> the actual answer is that it just kind of happened that way. So growing up, my mom worked, she still works for NASA. And so the like default idea that I had in my brain for what a woman would become was a NASA scientist, which I guess is already not a normal sentence to say, but that was my reality. And so all through high school, I really loved my science classes. And I have a physics teacher who was an astrophysicist and would teach us about his research on black hole jets sometimes if we had extra time at the end of class. And I was like, that's what I want to do. And so I, I think I technically declared my major before I even arrived on campus after the major from the get-go. 
took, you know, all of the math and physics and astronomy classes uh, right out of the gate, really loved it. And then the world continued to happen. Obviously in college, you're like, eyes are being open to a lot of things. It also was the case that there have been since and were before a lot of very public police shootings of Black people that ended in their deaths from Freddie Gray, Mike Brown, Eric Garner was in the shooting. They all happened within the sophomore, junior year that I was in college. And I started to really upset about these things and be thinking about these things more. And I took a class called African-American History from Emancipation to Present just to like see what it would be like. And I learned so much in that class that I had no idea that I didn't know. Like things about my hometown that are apparently nationally important on the scale of African-American history that I had never learned about. I was like, okay, clearly this is important. I still had three semesters left. I could barely eke it out. So I ended up squeezing in the double major. And as for you asked about like the work that that led to, very excitingly, I was able to pull off, I think, my African-American studies thesis senior year was an investigation into how race and gender influence physics and astronomy, not just from the point of culture and demographics and who's in the room, but actually trying to bring a substantive critique about how socialization is an important aspect that contributes to how we do science and changes the things that we think of as scientific priorities and the way that we fund things and the way that we talk about things and conceptualize things. So yeah, I was able I was able to bring them together at least in that one project, which was really, really thrilling. Yeah, that's actually pretty similar to my own journey towards declaring a double major in political science. I know for you and, you know, so there are a lot of shootings and those like social incidents had led you to declaring that double major. For me, it was, you know, when President Trump was elected in 2016 and I was just kind of sitting there and soaking it all in and just being like, hey, you know, I don't necessarily want to work on small problems in big tech. I want to actually utilize my skill sets for something that I'm truly passionate about and that leads to social good. So I was considering declaring the whole double major in political science. I hadn't decided. And I actually took my first political science course in college in U.S. racial and ethnic politics. I think that's what the course was called. It was actually a really, it was a really cool course. And just seeing how like legislation and all this stuff like affected everything. And I was like, this is really definitely what I want to do. And this is something that's an extremely intriguing concept to me. And even like when I was writing my papers and like taking in like statistics and code and writing my final papers and combining tech and racial and ethnic politics was something that I was truly passionate about. And that's why I ended up going into combining those fields too. So it was really cool that we kind of just had a very similar start to our own journeys at our undergraduate level careers. Mm -hmm. So last summer, Lauren, you wrote an article on Medium about the reasons why you left astrophysics. These reasons included racial inequality, quote, the inability of astronomers to be respectful community members, end quote, and the mistreatment of your Black and Brown colleagues in the field. The really interesting thing that stuck out to me is when you state that, quote, this is not a case of a few bad apples, it's all the apples. Treatment of individuals by race in STEM fields has been a topic that has come up recently on our podcast, with one of our previous guests, Vinesh Cannon, explaining why he left Google due to its racist treatment of one of its ethics AI researchers and an HBCU recruiter. However, we definitely believe a first-person perspective is needed here. Can you dive deep into your thought process for changing your career path and exemplify the racial inequalities that face Black astronomers and technologists? Absolutely. So first, I have to take a second to complain about 
a literary choice that I made, which is that I had such a great opportunity to say it's not a few bad apples, it's the whole orchard. And instead I said, it's all the apples. That would have been great. <laughs> so silly. <laughs> anyway, I've been regretting that ever since I wrote it. But yeah, as to how the career change came about, it really was kind of kicked off by a summer internship that I had before my senior year of college which was in a program called the Banneker Institute at Harvard, which is an astronomy research undergraduate internship that specifically is for black and brown undergrads and was just the most amazing program for me. Monday through Thursday would start our days like doing computer science and learning about astronomical concepts and then do research in the afternoons. And then Fridays were social justice Fridays. So we would truly like not lock ourselves, but lock ourselves in a room for like three to five hours and get into the nitty gritty details of a whole bunch of different social issues. Like we had one day where all we did was define what the word race and racism meant. We had another day that we talked about mass incarceration. Another day we talked about immigration, sexism, all sorts of things. So I was really thinking about both, not to turn it into a binary, but you know, thinking about social issues while thinking about astronomical issues in the very same like space and time. And I had one day where we had a really tough social justice Friday. I think it might've been mass incarceration day. And there's a lot of tears that were shed and there's a lot of truths that were told. And I was walking back across campus and I just had this like deep gut realization that no matter how much I loved astronomy and thought it was so fun that I just couldn't see myself doing it anymore because the things that I was learning about the world and humans and the ways that people have been left behind and are continually being oppressed were just so much more important. And I couldn't personally live with myself if I continued to like do really cool dark matter research, knowing all the things that I knew and not just devoting as much of my time to that as I possibly could. So that's kind of how that came about for me. As far as the questions about what Black astronomers and technologists more generally face. There's a lot. I think about it on a number of different levels. So there's like the access level, which is how Black and brown communities even come in contact with technological career paths, which obviously we already have obstacles there right out the gate from unequal educational opportunities and economic hardships that don't make people feel like this is something that's even on their radar that they know they can do, that they are empowered to do, that they have the skill sets to. There's the representational aspect where you don't see people who look like you in the field, like literally with your eyes, which is a way of kind of maybe signaling that, okay, well, if no one else has done this, then why would I be able to do this? There's the cultural aspects and the ways that people interact with each other in these fields, STEM fields, astronomy, technology writ large. Um, just the ways that people talk to each other are highly cultural and highly kind of specific to certain environments. So if you're coming from a Black community, you might not understand the language literally. And then, of course, there's people who are still actively discriminatory and exclusionary who will dissuade people, dissuade women, dissuade non-white people from continuing. And then the part that I think maybe we need to talk about more is also just the context of what it means to be someone from a marginalized background in that space and the way that it changes your entire perspective on everything that you do and the way that you see the world and how you prioritize the work that you're doing. So yeah, I could become an astronomer. And if I were spending all of my days thinking about galaxy formation, that would just simply not be my priority a lot of the time because there would be 
terrible stories in the news and there'd be issues going on with my families and my communities and there'd be political things that I would need to be rallying around, which is maybe not the case for people who are coming in from you know, the majority who are white folks who don't have economic hardships, who aren't aware of the effects of white supremacy and police violence in the country. And so that just I means it colors absolutely everything you do and how you think about it. It's complicated and um, there's a lot of different kind of tiers to the way that I, I think about it. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I know the concept you had brought up earlier in that response about people who are individuals of color not seeing other people like themselves in these fields is is something that's huge. And one of the things that I have been complaining about, you know, various computer science departments is that a lot of these cultural issues that occur in tech kind of start at the collegiate level just because you're around white and Asian at a college level in CS departments. I mean, CS departments are overwhelmingly white and Asian men. In turn, the companies become that. As a result, you know, you have these minority groups whose perspectives aren't fully reflected and it just leads to a lot of issues. And I think that's something that also, as you're exemplifying right now, also exists in astronomy as well. Kind of segueing from that, you know, as a person who is also an individual of color, the last paragraph of your article really stood out to me when you state, quote, like any minoritized person leaving a field where they have invested years of their life, I carry unjustly heightened feelings of guilt and shame for failing to be the academic role model that those following me might have wanted me to be, and for being yet another statistic of a Black woman who will never join the ranks of the astronomy professorate. My question here is twofold, Lauren. Did this weight of being a role model and wanting to be successful delay you from leaving the field? And did this sentiment help guide you to taking a job at the ACLU of Massachusetts? I mean, from my own perspective, obviously, this is a very different story from your own story, and your story is the main point of this podcast today. But I mean, wanting to be seen as successful by my own peers who are going to all these big tech companies led me to taking a lot longer than I should have for fully leaving the chase for going after Facebook and Amazon and Google. So I'm really curious as to what your take here is. Yeah, this is a really great question. I think that the way that people respond to that sort of pressure, being a tokenized person in a STEM field like that is really going to differ person to person. So My answer is that I don't actually think that that pressure prevented me from leaving. I think it agonized the process of me leaving and made me feel really bad about it. But it didn't really feel like a choice to me after a certain point because I had this big epiphany that I talked about. And just from that moment on, felt myself already disengaging from being wholly committed to the idea of a career in astronomy because it just didn't match up anymore with my with my own like morals and my values and my priorities. And so kind of felt like I just like fell down the hill and I had to keep rolling. I'll also, I want to have a little shout out to one of my, my own big mentors who has been really instrumental in my thinking about this. Karen Oberg is an astronomy professor at Harvard. She was my mentor during the Vanneker Institute that I was talking about earlier. And she's been so phenomenal as I've come to her with more and more confusing questions about what I should do with my life. There's one time in particular that I came to her and I was considering applying to master's programs and something kind of random. And she basically what she said was, you want your path from where you are now to where you want to be, to be a gradient of the surface. So basically you don't want to take the long way ambling back and forth along the mountain and choosing this idea and choosing that idea and eventually making your way there. You want to always be taking the steepest possible path to 
towards the goal that you've set for yourself. And for me, that meant leaving. <laughs> it didn't mean continuing to bop around in astronomy. It meant taking the first exit that I found that would get me into more socially oriented technical work. And that was the ACLU. So yeah, all of these things together definitely made it kind of a no-brainer when I learned about the opportunity to be the science and technology fellow at the ACLU. I was like, yeah, if they give me that offer, how could I possibly say no? Let's jump into your work at the ACLU. And one of the things we want to discuss with you was your work related to police data in Massachusetts. Now, I have a bit of experience working with local data through Code for Milwaukee and police departments and or if they're like police and fire departments like Milwaukee's is, um, they tend to share uh, data related to crimes and traffic accidents. However, there are some structural issues with this data. Crime data tends to be underreported. Also, if crimes tend to affect minority communities, there are additional structural issues within reporting crimes that makes it hard to know how much is actually going on, such as mistrust of the police and fear, like fears over immigration status. But specifically, police are far less likely to be equally transparent when sharing data related to police use of force data, unless, of course, they are required by law or more likely settlement. We know that you have done some work related to police use of force data in Massachusetts. How did you collect this data related to police use of force? Yeah, I love this question because it's an excuse for me to lift up the amazing folks in our field department at the ACLU, because the answer is crowdsourcing. You're absolutely right that if you're trying to find comprehensive data sets on things that make the police look not great, it gets harder and harder, the more potentially incriminating the data sets can be in my personal experience. And I think the project that you might be referencing was part of a larger campaign called Police Violence Happens Here which we launched last fall and was in direct response to a piece of legislation, a new law that was being worked out at the time in the Massachusetts State House that would implement a whole bunch of new policing reforms in the wake of summer of 2020 that we had. Part of that campaign, we decided that we wanted to do some public education and data visualizations around police violence in Massachusetts specifically. Immediately found out there is no database for that, no data set for that. What we did was we called up Liv, our amazing person in the field department, and Liv organized so many fantastic ACLU members to volunteer their time. And we set up a Google Sheet and everyone just Googled different keywords around policing and police brutality and violence and police cause deaths and all those sorts of things and populated a Google spreadsheet with people's names, the dates, the locations, officers involved, police departments involved, and so on. And that was, that was it. That was super powerful. I mean, you know, that was it. It was a lot of people's time. I don't know how many different dozens of hours worth of volunteers' time they put towards that task, but was able to bring together a comprehensive database as far as the publicly documented instances of police violence in Massachusetts. And we were able to turn that into our database and our map, which was absolutely amazing. Yeah, the data visualizations and the databases, just being able to go through that, is an awesome community resource. I think it, was, it may have been the ACLU of Wisconsin that requires the Milwaukee Police and Fire Departments to at least report police and fire misconduct. And it's available on the Milwaukee Open Data Portal. But it's very hard to identify like where these issues are occurring without doing that sort of cross-checking of um, sources and being able to find like news stories and links to these incidents. 
It, it seems like it's a lot of work to collect all this data, but its value to the community is incalculable. We also wanted to discuss your work surrounding COVID-19 in Massachusetts. I remember reading a New York Times analysis, I think it was last week, that showed eviction rates were spiking in COVID hotspots in New York City. Uh, these were also predominantly neighborhoods with higher minority populations and analyses from where I am from have shown similar findings. Are you noticing similar trends when working with COVID data in Massachusetts and more specifically Boston, I believe? Yeah, definitely. So we haven't looked at eviction data specifically, but we did, this is almost old now. We did analysis back last April, April, 2020, looking at COVID-19 across, as you said, the city of Boston and comparing that with different demographic markers from the census. And what we found, unsurprisingly, was that COVID rates were higher in the parts of town that had larger proportions of non-white populations, more racial minorities, and larger proportions of essential workers. So people working in food service, in transportation, in healthcare, obviously exactly the sorts of jobs that we've been talking about for a whole calendar year now that had people on the front lines, which is Again, not a surprise, though at that moment, actually in April, we were just kind of starting to have a national conversation about the racial impacts of COVID. And I don't know if y'all remember at the beginning, there was this weird discourse around COVID being the national equalizer because it was this disease that was affecting everybody. And then clearly, very quickly, people backtracked on that because we were able to yeah. be like, <laughs> That's definitely not the case. No. <laughs> Who yeah. the heck was saying that? I don't remember, but it was early. It was like March, early April that people were, were saying those things because, you know, people in wealthy parts of New York were getting sick and people in not wealthy parts of, at that time, just New York <laughs> were getting sick. But somewhat relatedly, we also did a statewide analysis looking more at questions around internet access and education. And there we found a more cross-racial effect that showed that you're less likely to have access to the internet in your home if you have lower income, which is, again, not a surprising, not a surprising thing at all. But I think just kind of is another thing to lump onto the evidence of the fact that this pandemic is not having an equalizing effect whatsoever, and that people in racial minorities People who are working in, you know, lower income communities, working class communities are exactly the same people who are being most affected by this tragedy. Sorry, I can't believe people actually called that the great equalizer. Like that is like something that is honestly crazy. Hand out not to be true and historically doesn't happen. I mean, you just have to look at right. like all these wealthy people have the means to move to places that are less likely to be infected. I mean, I think New York Times analysis showed that like most people who lived in wealthier parts of New York City ended up moving out to the country to their summer homes during the and pandemic. Evan, actually, to expand on that too, Andrew Yang did the same thing. And a New York City mayoral candidate, Andrew Yang, actually like moved out to the countryside during COVID-19. Because I remember, I don't know if this is a tweet or it's something that he had said that, you know, that it was impossible to raise like his family in a two-bedroom apartment. While, you know, you're trying to run to be the mayor of New York City, where a lot of these families were trying to raise their families in these smaller apartments is kind of, you know, a little hypocritical. And, and I mean, even like going back to the Black Plague, like in the 14th century, like it was very rare for nobles to get sick. They could just hide up in their castles. And you, you see like very similar parallels to that 
to now where wealthier people were able to basically avoid getting the virus after they had known like what sort of precautions they're going to take. So yeah, that argument's very weird. And your analysis on like school internet access, it kind of hits home for me. Like both my parents work in public schools and they work in admittedly not a very diverse district, but a very poor one socioeconomically. One of the main issues that they've had in my area specifically is like lower income students not being able to have internet access. And they're at least very fortunate where they work to have like a one-to-one student to technology device ratio. And also we're able to provide hotspots for these students, but it doesn't necessarily like mitigate the fact, like if their parents lose their jobs and then they have to work and miss school. And it's also very hard to motivate some kids if they're not in the classroom every day at the same time. You know, Lauren, we've talked a lot about police work that you've done at the ACLU chapter in Massachusetts and some of the COVID-19 work that you've done too, which to me is truly fascinating since I had spent some time this past summer when I was working at HHS, also working on the COVID-19 analytics stuff, but more from the healthcare, Medicare perspective. I'm curious if you could tell some of our listeners, what is some of the other work that you've done at the ACLU and some of the technologies that you've encountered and had to use during your time as well? Yeah. Some of the other things that I've been able to work on in this really amazing job include probably my favorite is a weird way to describe this project because it's awful. (laughs) But we at ACLU were able to basically petition the state a whole year ago around the treatment and conditions of prisoners and incarcerated people across the state of Massachusetts with the intention of basically advocating for them and trying to get as many people as possible released from these facilities with the understanding that COVID was immediately going to find these carceral facilities and given the cold quarters and the inability to social distance and the lack of access to personal hygiene things was going to get quickly really out of control and be really deadly. And we're advocating for the release of people near the end of their sentences, people being held on nonviolent charges, lots of different populations of people that really we should just not be holding. Lots and lots of people in Massachusetts are actually currently even being held pre-trial in prisons and jails, meaning they haven't even been convicted of anything. As a result of this litigation, when we basically sued the state, the Supreme Judicial Court required that the State Department of Corrections, so the group that runs all the prisons, and all of the counties in the state report to us daily the number of COVID tests, the number of positive COVID cases, the number of people who are released for COVID-related reasons, and some other metrics to the relevant parties in the case. So we're coming into this really great, important data about what's happening inside these facilities, but it's not being released publicly. So we decided to make a dashboard. So we used R and Shiny and another Google spreadsheet and created what I think is still the only interactive dashboard and database that you can find that shows the current state and history of COVID in prisons and jails across the state, which is a little surreal if I think about it too hard. It means that also we're doing the data entry on the ACLU side, so we're some of the first people to see when you have new outbreaks coming in. It's really tough over the fall and winter to see how wildly the numbers were climbing because these facilities are just hot spots for that sort of thing. But it's been really cool also to see. We've gotten emails from reporters. We've gotten emails from attorneys. We've gotten emails from researchers. We actually helped a team of epidemiologists publish a paper that's in the Journal of the American Medical Association about epidemiology, the epidemiology of COVID in Massachusetts carceral facilities. 
So that's been a really cool one to see kind of how that has actually been a resource to various people who are advocating for prisoners' rights in the era of the COVID-19 pandemic. Another perhaps simpler thing that we did that also resulted in a dashboard was just kind of connecting some dots. So kind of like what Evan was talking about, the Boston police do release data on different crime incidents that take place across the city. Every day, in theory, they release this data, but it's just kind of like plopped into the open data portal in CSVs that are not particularly easy for people to navigate, especially if they don't have any sort of technical training. So we were able to set up a dashboard that pulls from that API every day and then displays some more helpful things for people to look at rather than just CSV. So you can look at different sorts of charges, whether you're looking at disorderly conduct or vandalism or motor vehicle issues or theft or fire or whatever. And you can see how those things have changed over a given time period. You can compare things year to year. We also have a little mapping part so you can see where these different sorts of charges are happening across the city between different years. So that was kind of a simpler thing that also we're just using as part of our general public education, trying to make the government data that is available more accessible to people who need to use it and understand it and kind of moving into our broader organizational goals around prisoners' rights and police reform and accountability. And So it's been fun. That sounds like some really interesting work. And especially for me, I was really intrigued by the concept of the dashboard that you had described just now. Um, When I was the finance data analyst at the Texas Democratic Party, literally most of my work was just designing this automated financial data dashboard because we also had this like dirty finance data coming in from multitude of like Google Sheets and all these other resources. And I like combine them all together and like display them in such a way that they were easily readable and answered a lot of the questions that the finance team had in terms of like fundraising and donation strategy. So those dashboards are definitely things that are extremely useful in the civic technology and social technology spaces. Our last question for you, Lauren, on your website, you have a bunch of amazing resources for potential civic technologists and individuals who are considering utilizing their technology skill sets for social good. I know you've also done a little bit of work with one of our partner organizations, Impactful. They also just do some really amazing things too. What resources would you recommend for college students and early career professionals who might consider working in civic tech or in social tech? Yes, I love this question. I keep that list of resources on my website because I had so much trouble breaking into public interest tech, civic tech, social tech, whatever you want to call it as we've talked about, came from astronomy. No one in astronomy knew what any of those things were. And it was one of those situations where I just felt like I was walled in. And then as soon as I started the ACLU, it was like someone punched a hole in the wall and I was just flooded with lovely information about great organizations and newsletters and conferences and people and scholars that I wanted to learn all sorts of things about. So yeah, I have three kind of go-to recommendations for early career folks that I like to plug which might be somewhat repetitive from the things that I imagine y'all like to plug because one of them is coding it forward. <laughs> which yes, love coding yeah, it forward. <laughs> is a really great opportunity for college students to be matched with government agencies and have really hands-on internship experience doing civic technology like for real in college. But even more simply than that, they have a great newsletter. And I love looking to their newsletter for job postings and articles and bios about people that I haven't heard about. And I always have a good time scrolling through that. So 
recommend that. You did mention Impactful. Impactful is also on my top three list, being a really phenomenal place to look that has comprehensive job board for opportunities and internships in this space. I think they also maintain an organization directory. So kind of regardless of what's available at this exact moment, you can start daydreaming about what sorts of organizations you're interested in and where you might want to pay attention to. And they also have a fun Slack community that is connecting people across different geographies who are interested in questions of public interest tech. And then the last one that I will plug, which I should probably disclose that I'm an affiliate. I should, (laughs) I'm not just trying to self-promote here. The Berkman Klein Center at Harvard is a predominantly academic interdisciplinary center that focuses on research questions around the internet and society. I'm an affiliate of the center. It's a really cool space to be surrounded by a lot of interesting people, some of whom are in academia, some of whom are not doing advocacy work around lots of different interesting intersectional questions around the internet and society. But key, they also have a great newsletter where they post really cool articles and also they post little lists of job postings and conferences and workshops and talks. And I learned a ton about this community and this field by just being a fly on the wall for some of those workshops and those talks, which is even easy to do during COVID, which is a silver lining. So those are, those are my three main things that I like to plug. Yeah, those are all really awesome resources. I mean, Evan and I were in a very similar boat to you when we were kind of first trying to break into the civic tech field. And I mean, he and I both had pretty decent amounts of experience prior to like this past summer, right? Evan had done projects with the Illinois Red Cross. I had kind of combined things slowly and slowly with pure tech internships and pure political internships and majoring in CS and double majoring in political science. But we did have a hard time breaking into that field. And, you know, coding it forward, like you said, was a great way to get into it. And the newsletter that they have is truly one of my favorite resources too. The Facebook group that they have, uh, which ironically, I first learned about when I was on the bus to Facebook. I was scrolling on Facebook and found that the Coding It Forward Facebook group was suggested to me. So I guess I can thank Facebook for telling me about Coding It Forward and bringing me on the path where I am on today. And Impactful's resources are awesome too. Their Slack channel, their job board. Evan and I both personally know, you know, the people who run Impactful, Nithi, for example, and they're all truly wonderful people and are doing amazing things there too. So really glad that both of those organizations, I probably would have said the exact same thing. And I know Evan would have as well. I feel like I didn't maybe add a lot of novel content, but it is, they're important and they're good. So (laughs) they are, they are very, very important. I guess the only other thing I'd add to your list and for my own personal note, like all those sources are great, but if you just want to get involved on the local civic tech scene, there are offshoots of code for America brigades pretty much in every major city of the United States. So if you want to learn like what's going on in civic tech in your neck of the woods, you just have to search like code for city that's closest to you. For me, that's Milwaukee. For Jay, that may be Chicago or Austin or wherever the heck he ends up relocating. (laughs) Again, like just another awesome resource to get to know what's going on in the space, to work in the space, but also get to know some really awesome people. Thank you so much for coming on today, Lauren. This is truly such a fun conversation. It was great talking again after um, our interactions over the summer too. Yeah, yeah. I was so glad to see your email. So I'm glad we were able to make it work and have a chat. It's been fun.
you all for listening to this episode of Civ Tech Talks. Special thanks to our guest, Lauren, for being on the podcast this week. We plan on releasing more episodes in the near future, so please follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Please give us a follow on Twitter or Instagram at Civ Tech Talks. Thanks, y'all. Thank you.